Hey guys, let's go to the Gospel of John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13, and we're going to read the first 20 verses of this chapter. Let me read this to us. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The, Lord, the word of the Lord. So I have to confess, I've had a bit of a hard time this week figuring out uh, the direction uh, to go this morning with this passage of Scripture. Uh, on one hand, you have one of the most famous things that Jesus ever did, washing the disciples' feet. You also have what seems to be like a direct command as well. Uh, like in verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says something to the effect of, You should do just what I have done to you. Yet, this is something Christians largely do not practice, right? Like, we don't wash feet as a part of our worship gatherings. Um, Foot washing is not only like culturally unknown in today's world due to the fact that we don't walk everywhere with our feet exposed, but it's also, I guess you could say, uh, somewhat liturgically unknown in that it is not something 
most Protestant Christians regularly practice as a part of worship. Now, some churches, like the Roman Catholic Church, they will do like a foot-washing ceremony on Maundy Thursday uh, during Holy Week every year. That, that does seem to be something that happens occasionally, but, but even that practice in the Catholic Church did not come about until the medieval period, so five, six hundred years after the time of Christ. In other words, this is what's so fascinating to me. The apostles did not seem to receive Jesus's words as some sort of ritualistic command. As if Jesus was instituting the sacrament of foot washing. No, the the church has never considered foot washing as a sacramental ritual. Yet on the same night that this happened, Jesus did institute the sacrament of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper with the direct command, do this in remembrance of me. And the apostles clearly received that as a command to engage in this ritualistic mode of worship in which the Eucharist became a practice in the earliest evidence of Christian worship would revolve around the Eucharist. So uh, what's going on here? I'm using a word you've probably heard, but maybe a bit nebulous to you, and that's the word sacrament. What is a sacrament? Uh, the word, word itself comes to us from Latin, uh, word sacramentum, uh, that means something like solemn oath. Uh, There's also a Greek word that gets partnered with that, and that's the word mysterion, um, which is obviously where we get our English word mystery. Um, But a mysterion in Roman culture was a soldier's oath of allegiance to the army. Early church father Tertullian says that that we can think about the sacraments in much the same way, that it is like this doorway into a new life. In the same way that a soldier taking an oath of allegiance to the country or to the army or to the emperor or whomever enters into a new life because of his oath, in the same way a sacrament is this kind of doorway into this kingdom life. We also get this English word sacred as well, which tends to refer to something that has been like set apart for God. And historically, the church saw two sacraments, the sacrament of the Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, uh, and the sacrament of baptism, two rituals that had been set apart that served as sort of doorways into this new life of Christ. Um, Also, two things that had been directly commanded by Christ to the apostles. Um, And it's also worth noting that the common view was that God was somehow like imparting grace to people through these sacraments. So not only are we sort of entering into this Christ life through these things, but but also maybe it works the other way where God is somehow extending his grace to us through them. But but how does that happen? What's going on there? It's a mystery. With foot washing, you have something that has all the hallmarks of a meaningful, sacred, ritualistic practice, including the command from Christ to wash other people's feet. Yet it seems clear that neither the apostles nor the earliest Christians treated this as a separate sacramental practice. And my question is, so what did they do with this? How how did they receive this? What did this mean to them? 
Here are two themes that I think are of significance in this text. One is this theme of moving from uncleanness to cleanness, moving from uncleanness to cleanness. The other is moving from confusion to understanding. So uncleanness to cleanness and moving from confusion to understanding, two themes. Often when this text is preached, the point will simply be that Jesus was modeling like this posture of servanthood as the master washing the feet of his servants, that he's showing them the, the kind of servants he wants them to be. And, and then his command is right for them to not just do this specific thing, but to kind of take the spirit of it and to go out and to serve others and to embody it in some way, to sort of proverbially wash feet, to enter into to the muck and mire of people's lives and to not think of themselves as somehow being above other people or superior to other people or something like that. And, and listen, I, I certainly think that that is right and true and a huge part of what's going on here. But I also think there may be a little bit more that we haven't picked up on. Let's talk about this uncleanness to cleanness piece. Uh, so we have this sacrament of baptism, right? Uh, what is baptism? It is a washing of water that symbolizes repentance, certainly what it was for John the Baptist, but also in the case of Christ, it symbolizes death and resurrection, being buried with Christ and being resurrected with him. Uh, that is this uh, symbol of rebirth into the kingdom of God. And it is central, right? It's a central piece of Christian practice and experience. And yet, interestingly, something we never see in the pages of Scripture are the disciples being baptized. We also never see Jesus baptizing anyone. Isn't that interesting? Now, earlier in John, we learned that Jesus and the disciples were out baptizing people. We kind of heard about this secondhand from one of the followers of John the Baptist, but we never actually see it happening. And what John is, uh, takes care to like point out to us is that Jesus himself was not actually baptizing anybody. It was his disciples who were baptizing other people. And so, so with that in mind, this scene in the upper room is both the closest thing we have to an example of the disciples being baptized, as well as to Jesus himself doing any baptizing. But it can be problematic, I think, to view this as an example of baptism. To the positive, we have the cleansing language that is so linked to baptism, this idea of, of being washed of your sins, of being cleansed. Verse 8 and 9, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, then Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? Like if that's the case, then everything. Let me go all in. Let me get dunked. To the negative, though, all the New Testament accounts of baptism seem to be by immersion. Like, that's a little bit speculative, but, but most, or if not all of the New Testament accounts of baptism, that's what seems to be happening because it's happening in a river. It's not what's happening here. Even more strange, Jesus apparently also washes the feet of Judas, who is only minutes away from betraying him. 
So not, the, not only is the form of baptism different, it's not what's prevalent in the New Testament, but, but also you have this person who is a betrayer of Christ, who is included in this cleansing, who is included in this washing that takes place. And, and so I, I think there's an elephant in the room here, and Jesus responds to that, verses 9 through 11. Simon Peter said to him, right, Lord, not my, not, like, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So there's a practical sense in which the first part of that statement is true. If you've bathed and then you walk down the dusty road to your neighbor's house for dinner, your, your feet may get dirty, but the rest of your body is clean like you've bathed. So you just need to wash your feet and you're going to be good. You don't need to wash your whole body. But the emphasis here is on Judas. It's like Jesus is saying to the other disciples, you guys have already bathed. You're clean. I'm just, I'm just washing your feet here. But one of you has never even bathed. So the feet can get washed, but the body is still dirty. The body is still unclean. Here's the key foothold, I think. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We need the cleansing that can only come from Christ. And it seems clear that Jesus is using foot washing as a metaphor to describe a deeper reality. So it's not enough to simply participate in a ritual. We need Jesus to cleanse us fully. And then we need to extend the cleansing of Christ to others. The second theme, moving from unknowing to understanding... Verse 6, came to Simon Peter and said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. It's, it's like he's saying, I know you guys aren't going to get what I'm doing, but give it a minute. Give it a minute, and it's going it's, it's to hit you. You're going to see it. And then afterwards he says, verse 12, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So what is it that Jesus wants them to understand here? I don't think it's like the finer points of foot washing technique. I don't think Jesus is going, look, you really got to get between those toes, right? It's going to be good. No, no, no. Look at verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In other words, if you call yourself my servant, and yet you think you are somehow above groveling on the floor to clean the dirt and the animal feces off the feet of another person, you have missed what it means to be my servant. I, I, I can't help but think that this must have been... Among like the weird experiences that the disciples have with Jesus, that this, this might have been up there to see what they've seen, 
right? To see the miracles, to hear the pronouncement of Jesus's divinity, right? To, to be so bought into the fact that this guy is not only a good teacher, a good preacher, or like my rabbi, but that this guy is the long foretold Christ, the long foretold Messiah. How like disorienting, disorienting must it be to then like see him disrobe and then like get down at your feet and begin washing your feet? What in the world is Jesus doing here? I, th I think what John wants us to see, I think what he's wanting his disciples to see is what true Christ-like agape love looks like. That's actually how John introduced this whole scene to us. Look back at verse 1. Verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now that, that sounds to me just kind of like a transition line, right? Like you've probably, you probably just glazed right over it. That's initially how I read it. Like this is just sort of a, it's just a bridge. But I think what John is actually doing here is, is teeing up the story of the foot washing. He's, he's saying he loved them to the end. Now here's what I mean by that. He loved them to the end. Now let me show you an example of that. And the odd part of that verse to translate into English is that last part. He loved them to the end. Now, that could simply mean that Jesus loved them to the end of his life. But, but I think a rendering that gets more to the heart here is this. He loved them to the uttermost. So it's not the end in the sense of time. It's the end in the sense of like distance, like metaphorical distance, like saying he went all the way. He went all in. One rendering I love is this. He showed them the full extent of his love. And love here is the word agape. It's self-sacrificing love. It's different from romantic love or warm affection. John isn't saying something like Jesus showed them the full extent of his affection, but rather Jesus showed them the full extent of his sacrifice. Jesus gave them a glimpse of how far he is going. And then what does he tell them? I've given you an example to follow. If I, emphasis on the I, if I, the creator of all things, has groveled before you to serve you by wiping away your filth, so you should do the same. And, and notice in particular he's saying you should do the same for each other. Right? Jesus doesn't seem to be talking about just random people you might encounter. This, this actually isn't just a simple love your neighbor and your neighbor's anybody. Like, he's speaking specifically to his disciples, saying, I expect you guys to love each other in this way. Like, in this self-sacrificing, almost humiliating way. Think of what Jesus has done, right? He has humbled himself by stepping out of heaven, by taking on flesh. He has humiliated himself by giving away power and going all the way to the cross, by truly sacrificing, by truly groveling before his own creation as a servant 
so that we might be cleansed. He's like, if you get this, if you understand this, then at the very least you should be doing this for each other. Right, so the idea here, I think, is that the church, not, not the building or the institution, but the people of the church, that this should be the people that embody and like live out this kind of love on the regular. Not just if it, if it is convenient for me or if it fits with my agenda, but, but literally stepping into this place where it's like we're, we're willing to go to this extent to show the agape of Christ to our brothers and sisters. And, that, and I think that what the scripture would point us towards is this notion that if there's anything we should want other people to see in us and to see in our community, it's that. Something that is so holy and completely different from the rest of the world. Self-sacrificial love. And Jesus says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So it's possible to know them and not do them. It's possible to get it, but not practice it. But if you want to be blessed, this is almost like a beatitude. If, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Man, I couldn't help but think this week about a story I heard years ago from uh, one of my favorite preachers, uh, who's a guy named Michael Frost. He's an Australian theologian, great preacher. Uh, but he told this story um, about speaking at a conference, I think maybe in Europe. I'm just, this is from memory, so I may butcher some of this. I uh, was speaking at a conference in Europe. And as a part of the conference, they said, hey, tonight we're all going to go over to this church that's just down the block, and we're going to have a communion service together. We have a Lord's Supper service together. And so after the conference led out of, you know, like the conference center, uh, the people all walk down the block. They go to a traditional church building, steeple, stained glass windows, you know, just a normal traditional looking church building. But he said, when we went into the building, we went into the sanctuary space, all of the furniture had been removed. The pews were gone. Everything on uh, the stage was gone. Uh, the pulpit was gone. The room was completely empty, uh, except for the floor had been lined with like heavy black plastic from wall to wall. And then in the middle of the room was a, a mound of garbage. He said it was about waist high, just this huge pile of garbage in the middle of the room. And he's like, not like you're recycling stuff, like not like cardboard and, you know, cans, but like your kitchen waste, like apple cores and banana peels and vegetables and just, I mean, just all of this gross stuff. And he said there were just like little rivers of garbage juice flowing out from this big mound in the center of the room. He said, so we came into this room and there were screens in all four corners of the room. And so everybody like stood in a big circle around this pile of garbage in the middle of everything. And he said, 
things just proceeded like a normal service. No one really got up and said anything, but what popped up on the screen were just like the normal elements of a liturgy. Let's read this passage of scripture. Let's read this responsively. Let's pray this prayer together. And he said, so we walked through this liturgy together and he said, I, like I was trying to get into it, but the whole time I was just thinking, why is there an enormous pile of garbage that reeks like in the middle of this space? <laughs> And so they come to the portion of the service for communion. And he said these two guys came out from the side of the room uh, dressed in like uh, monk's cassocks, like a monk's robe. And these guys came to the pile of garbage and disrobed, uh, wearing Speedos. You know, just like what happens here every week. Um, <laughs> These guys were wearing Speedos, and they then proceeded to, like, wade into this pile of garbage. And they got to the middle of it and then turned around and looked at everybody and invited the crowd to participate in Holy Communion and said, and as you come, they said something like this, as you come today you come in remembrance of the death of Christ who has died this horrific and yet atoning death on the cross so that you might be offered new life and restored and brought into the family of Christ, the family of God. He's done all that, but, but there is more. If, if you come and eat the bread and drink the wine tonight, you are also declaring the resurrection of Christ. The fact that he not only died, but he rose from the dead, and in rising from the dead, he declares um, that, he, you know, obviously it declares that he is real and true, that he is good, that he is everything that he claimed to be, and, and so through his resurrection, um, the beauty of the gospel is made complete, and we're able to see this kind of full spectrum of what has happened here, that he is everything he claimed to be, and, 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 and all of that is true, but there more. And, and so if you, if you come tonight, you're declaring those two things, but you're also recognizing what Jesus says in John 20, 21, which is this, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Or in the same way that the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Or as he says here in chapter 13, if I have washed your feet, your Lord and Master, if I've done this to you, then so you also should go and do the same thing. And he said one of the guys reached down into the garbage and pulled out a bottle of wine wrapped in a paper bag. And the other guy uh, reached down and grabbed a loaf of bread uh, that was thankfully wrapped in plastic and, and said effectively, like, if, if you are going to eat this bread and drink this wine, not only are you saying, I believe these things are true, but you're also recognizing that you also have been called into this mission, that you have been sent in the way that Christ was sent to wade into the muck and the mire of our world and to truly serve others 
in the way that you have been served. And so if you want to receive this tonight, take off your shoes, take off your socks, roll up your jeans, hike up your dress, and come in here and get it. <laughs> and, and so what he said when he got to the end of that story, obviously this is super weird, right? And yet, I wonder if, if it was really all that different from the disciples seeing their Lord and Master disrobe and suddenly begin washing their feet. What Michael Frost said was, you know, I, um, I wasn't, I, I was hesitant to like take communion, but, but not because I was worried about garbage juice running between my toes, but because of like the gravity of the fact that Jesus hasn't just done something to us, he has also called us into something together. And that's what he says here, isn't it? I've given you an example to follow that you should do just as I have done to you. Friends, when we extend true agape to those around us, when we truly like humble and even humiliate ourselves for the sake of others, I think that we're beginning to embody the essence of foot washing and, and we're like giving foretastes of the kingdom of God, little glimpses, little, little tastes of what it's like. How is it that the sacraments extend grace to us? This may not be the full answer, but both baptism and communion are rooted in agape. They are rooted in the self-sacrificing love of Christ. The master has stooped at our feet to clean the dirt and the muck off of us. And had he not done that, there would be no way that we could be cleansed. And the master has borne our sin and our shame on the cross. His body was broken. His blood was spilled. Profound acts of agape. Chapter 15, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And he says, go and do likewise. Church, what does it look like for you in your everyday to model this kind of self-sacrificial love? What do you have to set aside of your own agenda, your own comfort, your own desires in order to truly sacrificially love people around you? My prayer for us this week is that as we consider what it looks like to actually join Jesus in this mission, that we would truly spend time with him in prayer maybe fasting, coming before him going, Lord, who is it that you've put in my path that you've called me to live this way in front of? Um, and in particular, who in, in like our church community, right? We can, we can be so focused on those outside the church. It's going to sound weird, but we can be so focused on those outside the church that we neglect to love each other well inside the church. And when we do not love each other well inside the church, we have effectively rendered the message of the gospel null and void to those outside the church.
Look at the scandal that surrounds the church in America in today's world. Is that helping the gospel? Or is it hindering the gospel? How we love each other matters. How we love each other testifies to the validity of Christ and the validity of the gospel. So what does that look like for you? Go and do likewise. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, we do pray this morning uh, that you would truly interpret your word into our hearts and into our minds. God, show us what it is um, that you would have us do, not just as like individual instances of service, but Father, show us what it looks like to truly live with this posture that as a people who are hopefully seeking to become more like Christ, that we would be increasingly learning how to set aside our own desires, our own agendas, our comfort, our materialism, uh, our pursuit of stuff, so that we might sacrificially serve others. And God, if it is true anywhere, let it be true within the community of believers. I pray, God, that people truly would see our love for each other and would be compelled by the gospel vision. As you are the God who sacrificed himself for his sheep. Compel us, Father, and spur us on with your love and grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.